0: Mark chapter 1, verses 1-8. through 8. Hear now the Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send My messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, This is the word of God, and all God's people said, Amen. "You may be seated." I'm thankful to Mr. Hill who gave us an excellent lesson on this gospel text this morning, delving into some of the details, some of the allusions, some of the uh, the matters uh, behind the text that help us understand what's going on. Thank you for that. I'm going to continue reflecting on this text uh, in sermon form today. I'll be emphasizing some things that he did not did not, but there will be some overlap. I want you to imagine with me that you live in the region of Galilee sometime early in the year 70 A.D. There's a war going on in your land. Some zealous Jews have revolted against Roman authority and occupation. And about 120 miles south of you, the sacred city of Jerusalem is under siege. Reports are that conditions in the city are very strained. The people are divided. At one extreme, some see God raising up leaders to push the infidels from the Holy Land. On the other extreme of the spectrum, some urge submission to Roman rule as the path to peace and security. But regardless of their views, everyone is anxious. On edge, caught between the resentment of heavy-handed soldiers and the fear of extremist guerrillas. To add to this instability, Emperor Nero died about a year ago and there is now unrest in Rome itself. Four men have been acclaimed emperor since Nero's death, only to be assassinated in relatively quick succession. Now Vespasian, the very general who is besieging Jerusalem, has been crowned as the new emperor. The new son of God, as his forebear Augustus was titled. What will this mean for the war? No one is really sure. There are are threats on all sides. The price of oil is skyrocketing. Olive oil, that is. Your world is in turmoil. You are concerned about your children's future and about your own life. Where do you look for meaning and clarity and hope in the midst of such chaos and confusion and fear? Closer to home, you, your own village population is mixed on these matters. There are Jews and Gentiles living together and tensions are high. There is a lack of trust. Neighbors fear one another. Families fracture along ethnic and religious lines. One small sect in particular stands out to you because they refuse to fight on either side of this conflict. These are followers of a Galilean rabbi named Yeshua who was crucified for insurrection about four decades ago. Roman loyalists suspect this cult of Yeshua to be continuing the alleged insurrection of their founder. The rabbis call them heretics and the zealot rebels dismiss their founder as wholly ineffective against Roman occupation. Nevertheless, you are intrigued by their claim that Yeshua's crucifixion is a symbol of God's good news for Israel and Rome and even the world. You ask yourself, if this Jesus really was God's prophet, how is his execution good news for us? And where is the evidence of his victory? And one day someone hands you a well-worn scroll with a title scribbled on it, which says, The beginning of the good news about Yeshua, the Messiah. The Son of God. The title is provocative. The good news mentioned here is foremost a story about a man named Jesus. The word Messiah is loaded with meaning from Jewish tradition about the eschatological inbreaking of God who shakes the world, who's going to turn it right side up and restore proper order under God's rule. The designation Son of God challenges the claim of Divi Filius, the Son of God title found on many Roman coins next to portraits of emperors. So we might expect this story to challenge the established political order and side with Israel against the pagan oppressors. But the story opens with John the Baptist preaching not insurrection, but repentance. Repentance. How does this make sense of the present turmoil and religious confusion? Well, to help his readers understand their troubled situation, Mark proclaims the gospel of Jesus. But to understand the significance and identity of this Jesus, he looks immediately back to the Hebrew scriptures of Israel. Indeed, we cannot understand Christian faith adequately without understanding the Hebraic roots of our faith So much error is caused by a failure to recognize the organic unity of the Scriptures. Whatever we think God is doing in our world today and whatever we think God did in Jesus Christ should be consistent with what God was doing all along with His covenant with Israel. There is a fundamental continuity across all of Scripture with Jesus the Christ enveloped all around it and infused entirely within it. The good news of Mark's gospel begins not with a birth story of Jesus, as you recognize, as we find in Matthew, not with the birth story of John the Baptist, as we find in the gospel of Luke, and it doesn't begin with the beginning of time as we encounter it in the gospel of John. Rather, for Mark, the good news of the gospel begins with a hearkening back to the words of the prophets with even deeper allusions to creation and the exodus. Exodus. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark introduces Jesus as a full-grown man, perhaps reflecting the creation of Adam in the garden. Later in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is identified with John's baptism of renewal and is anointed and installed as the messianic king at his own baptism, the Spirit propels Jesus immediately into the wilderness to conquer Satan. And at the end of that temptation episode, if you'll remember, It's only Mark that mentions Jesus being with the wild animals. Perhaps again recalling Adam's fellowship with the animals in the garden. So Mark's announcement regarding the beginning of the gospel connects us to creation, but not as explicitly as the other gospel writers, particularly Matthew with his genealogy, and John with his elegant and soaring prologue. Nevertheless, Mark is subtly telling us That in Jesus, God is restoring not only humanity, not only humanity, but creation itself. This is not an announcement of some personal Jesus, but of a cosmic king that stoops down to restore his rule in the pining hearts of men who mourn in lonely exile here as we sing in O Come O Come Emmanuel. And so by using this term beginning, Mark is establishing here the fact that God is making a new start, but new in the sense that it's a great step forward, but not new in the sense that everything else is being left behind, as we will explore shortly in the Old Testament references. So the first impression created by this gospel, however, is that something decisive has happened which deserves complete and careful attention. When the Old Testament roots of the Gospel are explored, we do begin to see why this is so important. Why this proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ is so utterly significant. When the word for Gospel in Hebrew is used in its verbal form as a verb to announce the good news, it means the inbreaking of God's kingly rule, the advent of His salvation for the world, but also it comes with vengeance and vindication. Mr. Hill referenced this today in the idea of locusts and honey as we explored those images, right? The focus is on God's chosen people, but the implications range far wider than this, especially when at the coming of Jesus, God's people are currently under foreign rule. God's inbreaking has world significance. There are a number of important things implied by Mark's opening statement. I'm going to mention two here briefly before we move on into the rest of the text. First, one thing we need to consider is, or be reminded of by this, is that the good news is earthly, not ethereal. The good news is earthy. There is an earthiness at the heart of the gospel message. It is about God being committed to human affairs in all their details, being found alongside us even, It is in the midst of the events of human history that God has made himself real and known and continues to do so. Christianity is no ethereal, platonic, pie-in-the-sky religion. God becomes a man and dies. This is the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God became a man and everything has changed second the good news is a challenge to faith not just information about the faith mark is not writing just to inform his readers of some historical events but to challenge faith the word of god functions to compel us to action to a certain kind of living not merely to some intellectual assent I don't just get to agree with the scriptures. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I agree with that. That sounds good. I don't get just to agree with them. I have to act in accordance with its truth and the ethos of it. God speaks his sure word and we respond in faith, in obedience, not just agreement. So in Mark, there is an urgency about this story, an urgency that we also should share at some level. In fact, the term immediately is a favorite one of Mark in his gospel. For Mark, the gospel is not meant to entertain. It is much too serious for that. Life and death hang on this message. In Mark, Jesus' first words are crucial. Later on in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark does not only testify to this urgent challenge to belief, he also exemplifies it in the way that he crafts his message in his gospel, which does give us a sense of seriousness and urgency. Now I'm going to make a big deal today about Mark's Old Testament quotations uh, in verse two to three, uh, two and three, so just fair warning there, because I think it is so crucial that we grasp what is going on here, and there's a lot to learn from how the New Testament authors use Old Testament texts like this. So I want to go on a little journey about, about that just for a minute to expose some of the things that Mark is doing here for our understanding. The conscientious reader of the Bible will notice here that Mark cites Isaiah in verse 2. Then, interestingly, he begins quoting a line from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. As the prophet Isaiah says, a quote from Malachi. Um, But why does he do this? Is he confused? Uh, Does he not know his Old Testament very well? I raised the question in order to set us on a little excursion. we got to get above the tree line a little bit in order to see the panoramic scope of how the Scriptures are being tied together here by Mark. So throughout his Gospel, Mark's use of the book of Isaiah is something to pay very careful attention to. Rick Watts has done the church, I think, a great service in his seminal work on this aspect of Mark's gospel. In his book, Isaiah's New Exodus in Mark, he convincingly, in my view, argues that the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah's New Exodus theme, is crucial for understanding Mark's gospel in its fullest sense. Isaiah, like other Old Testament books, looks back to Israel's exodus from Egypt and recast that event as a prophecy for current Israel. That's what the prophets do with the Exodus event. And if we miss this, I'm afraid we miss the heart of Mark's conceptual world, of the world out of which he's telling us and presenting us the gospel of Jesus Messiah. We don't want to miss that. It is an understatement to say that the Exodus from Egypt is of considerable importance to Israel. It was the defining moment in the nation's history. It was the defining moment uh, for all their history, even up to the time of Jesus. It was when the Lord brought glory to himself, redeemed Israel from bondage, vanquished their enemies, and covenanted with with his people. He safely led them to the promised land eventually. Not only were the Israelites to gain comfort from Yahweh's past dealings with them and to remember them in the Exodus event, They were also to look expectantly that he would one day in the future repeat this momentous event yet again. What happens in the restoration, the the Babylonian exile, right? The prophets tell the people to look expectantly at God's day of Exodus. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, God promised to deliver Israel out of bondage once more and bring them back to the promised land. The Exodus motif is ubiquitous across the Old Testament, and it plays heavily in the theology of Isaiah. And Mark is drawing on this deep well of Exodus motif uh, theme in Isaiah. And one example from Isaiah is worth mentioning just to get, give you a, a, an idea, a sense of uh, the prominence of, I, uh, of Isaiah's use of the Exodus event. So in, in Isaiah 43, this is one example. He's using language that's explicitly alluding to the Exodus event. Here are a few of these verses. Uh, Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The next verse, verse 3. I give Egypt to you as your ransom. Uh, Chapter 43, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Clear allusion to the Exodus rescue. Later in the chapter, verse 19, I am doing a new thing, says the Lord. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, one of the major differences, as Mr. Hill pointed out in Sunday school, between the first exodus and the second exodus or the last exodus is that the Old Testament expects the second exodus to be a final consummate event. One last time in a series of exoduses. Um, would it be exodi? I don't think so. It's not Latin, is it? Um, a series of exoduses, right, that God brought his people through. But there is this one exodus that's coming That will be the final exodus. No more need for rescue. The Lord will once for all in the new covenant expectation deal with sin, forge a remnant from his people and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you read on through Isaiah, by the time you get to Isaiah in 65 and 66, this becomes evidently clear. So this Isaiah framework explains several unique features of the Gospel of Mark that may strike us as strange. And it offers us, I think, a more nuanced understanding of what Mark is trying to do in his presentation of the Gospel. Though Israel in the first century has relocated back to the Promised Land, they are in the land of Israel. She remains in spiritual exile and enjoys limited political independence. Think about the tension in the hearts of of the people of God during this time. The true faithful, the the ones who really cared about God's promises. Think about their situation. How much they were longing for God to make things right. Even though they were in the land, there was no peace. N.T. Wright makes a robust argument for Israel's continued state in exile uh, during this time of of the first century in his uh, New Testament and the people of God, if you're interested in that. Um, in that argument, you should check his book out. Um, he talks about this quite heavily. Many of Jesus' actions, though, fit nicely with Isaiah's expectation of a coming exodus. It's, it's set up so well for us. As one can see throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has come to deliver Israel from spiritual bondage in a new exodus of sorts and usher in the new creation. Jesus has come to deliver uh, Israel from Babylonian captivity. A captivity marked not primarily by physical bondage, but by spiritual bondage. As a mighty warrior, even one who is identified with the God of Israel, Jesus will vanquish Israel's true enemy, Satan himself. Jesus has come to guide his people safely through the wilderness and into the promised land once and for all. So upon Israel's arrival into the promised land, Yahweh will then dwell with his people in a far more glorious way than he did in the wilderness and the tent ministry. Not in a man-made tabernacle or temple, but richly in the covenant community who enjoy unfettered access to the full presence of God. In fact, this new covenant community will actually be the body of the risen Lord himself. It's marvelous. So hence the significance of Mark's immediate reference to Isaiah as the beginning of the gospel. And so as I mentioned earlier, the studious reader will notice Mark actually quotes two Old Testament texts here, one from Malachi 3, and then quickly moves to the Isaiah quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Yet he only mentions Isaiah the prophet. So the skeptic, of course, will be quick to point out that this is yet another clear example of the Bible's proneness to error. Mark can't even cite his sources correctly. What a dullard. Did he not pay attention in his research and writing course at university? This way of thinking betrays a gross ignorance of the manner in which the New Testament authors employ Old Testament texts and understand them. I think some of the most exciting work being done in biblical studies today is on this topic of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's so rich. There's so much, so much good conversation going on around this theme Mark is actually employing here a very nuanced method of referring to material in the Old Testament. Very Hebraic. It wasn't unknown in his day. Um, Old Testament texts can easily be grouped together under one specific theme. If you read Romans 3, for example, go to Romans 3 this afternoon, read through that. You'll see Paul doing this. The way he's grouping various Old Testament texts that to us don't seem like they have a lot to do with each other. Hebrews 1, for example, does this. In the references, many to the Old Testament, and the way he's employing them and using them in his argument. Mark strategically pairs these two Old Testament quotations, whereas Matthew and Luke cite them. They're citing the same texts, but they separate them. They place them in different contexts, even in different chapters. It's important to note here, though, that Mark's choice of the perfect tense for the word written carries with it the meaning that though these prophecies have been fulfilled in the past, they still stand written and effective and meaningful for the present. He uses the present tense when he says, as it is written, not as it was written, it is written. And so interestingly, Mark has a tendency to sandwich things like this. He says, as Isaiah the prophet says, then he sandwiches a little bit from Malachi and then he finishes with Isaiah. There's a little Isaianic sandwich here. And so, the significance of this sandwich is that the reader ought to understand Malachi 3 1, which actually has reference to Exodus 23. Uh, and we want to see that, that message through the lens of Isaiah 40. This is telescopic. This is, this is a little more sophisticated. And what we tend to do is we think, we read the, the Old Testament quotations here, we, we kind of, they seem bland to us. It's like they don't really pop out for us. Uh, and so, we, we end up interpreting it as some kind of primitive use of Scripture. But actually, it's just the opposite. This is a brilliant use of the Old Testament texts, packed full of richness and meaning. It's highly intentional. Instead of being some primitive error of citation, this is actually, it actually reveals a nuanced way Mark understands the organic unity of the Bible and how he appropriates it in light of the revelation of Jesus Messiah. The Bible is a mosaic of truth. Discerning the image requires deep engagement with the scriptures. We study the forest and the trees as we constantly look for the meaning and the message in the whole. Right? This is the process of meditation we talked about earlier. It's actually the accredited method the Bible gives us to gain wisdom, not just information but wisdom for living. And we need to pay attention to that. And so like Mark, we want... And wisdom, obviously, is the is the instrument of maturity, is it not? And so like Mark, we do want to be mature in our understanding of not just what the Bible says, but how it says it. So what I want to do now with all this background, and so thank you for, for going on this little journey with me. What I want to do now is bring this back into focus and briefly trace the thread that Mark is sewing through these two Old Testament texts real quickly. Malachi 3, which has Exodus 23 in view, and then Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so to see more clearly what is going on here, in Exodus 23, there is this messenger figure, and this messenger figure will protect Israel along the way to the promised land. The messenger promises to wage war against the pagan nations as they are idolatrous and wicked. If Israel obeys the covenant, God promises to bless them. But if they commit idolatry by conforming to these pagan practices, they will be punished. Now Malachi 3 picks up on this messenger motif and he appropriates this messenger of Exodus 23 to his own context. So we fast forward to Malachi's day at the end of Israel's prophetic history And we remember that in Malachi's time, Israel has not maintained justice within the community and has broken God's law on many levels. Malachi declares that a messenger figure will again arise and prepare the way for Yahweh to judge his people. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. In Exodus, Israel's enemies, the idolatrous nations, are on the receiving end of judgment. But think about this with me. Do not miss this. According to Malachi 3, 1 through 6, however, the messenger is paving a way for Yahweh to wage war, not against the pagans, but against Israel itself. Yikes. Israel has become the enemy. They have become the enemy of God. Those idolatrous Israelites who refuse to repent are judged by Yahweh. Malachi tells us. Yet those within Israel who do turn to the Lord in this repentance will escape the coming judgment and receive the blessing of the covenant promises. This explains then, back to Mark, why John the Baptist uh, is calling for repentance. Malachi's messenger must prepare Israel, which is exactly what John the Baptist is doing, for coming judgment by sparking repentance among the remnant within Israel. He is, he is sparking the conscience of those who are still faithful to God to come back. Those who repent will be vindicated by God's mercy and be restored. So, Mark gives us that whole package in one citation from Malachi 3, and then he connects it with Isaiah 40. That chapter serves as a transitional point in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 40 through 66 encompass or, or, or constitute the last chapter section, the last half of the book of Isaiah, they describe Israel's release from Babylon, from captivity, as a second exodus. The journey to the promised land and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. That's how the exodus is cast for them, for a future prophecy. All of this will take place through the main instrument of the Isianic or suffering servant, whom we're all familiar with because we sing about him in our Advent time and Christmas time. Isaiah describes God restoring His people from Babylon, leading them through the desert back to the promised land. Forty three is a very uh, forty uh, chapter forty verse three is a very significant text, and you know it well. A voice cries, "What does He say?" In the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord; make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And two verses later, Isaiah provides the result of Israel's return to land. What will that be like? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this should be echoing in our ears when we read Mark's reference to Isaiah 40. Mark assumes that we have been soaking in the hot tub of the language and theology of the book of Isaiah. Otherwise, we don't get the importance of that, right? And since we have done this, we will readily recognize that the return to the promised land will eventually give way... To God's decisive act of destruction of evil and the consummate restoration of all things. Those redeemed from Israel and the nations will dwell fully with God in the new creation. And by the way, just to remind us, do we realize that this has already happened for us? God has done this. Are we living in light of that? Do we are we conscious of that? Uh, That's the great that's the great proclamation of the New Testament. This is your reality. And so these twin, uh, these twin quotations from Malachi and Isaiah um, are explicitly uh, uh, given and directed to John the Baptist, who immediately comes after that. So just after he quotes these in verse 4, what does he say? John comes. John appears in the wilderness. He is both the messenger of judgment, as Malachi says, and the voice that announces the arrival of Israel's rep, uh, restoration from captivity, Isaiah 40. The messenger, therefore, has a twofold agenda. He must prepare rebellious Israel, lest they be annihilated at God's coming. And two, he summons Israel to repent and become part of this new covenant community through baptism. And John also announces the end of Israel's spiritual captivity by heralding the fulfillment of Isaiah's long-awaited new exodus of God's people. Israel's history is on the brink of reaching its climax in John the Baptist. As the end time messenger, he announces that God is coming to judge those who have broken the covenant and restore those who trust in his promises. This is indeed good news. And so given all this theological context, we now know what John the Baptist's role is. We know uh, how he fits into this story. We know what Mark's intention is in mentioning him, giving us this this, uh, prophetic vision of what is being fulfilled in Jesus Messiah. But Jesus' role, what about that? Well, I think it also uh, can be understood in the same context. Yahweh in Malachi 3 follows the messenger and judges Israel. So obviously the messenger announces something, but what happens after that? Well, Yahweh himself comes and does it. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, it says in Malachi. And according to Mark, it is Jesus who comes on the hills of the messenger, John the Baptist, which is a clear identification of Yahweh. The same can be said for Isaiah 40. It's an announcement that Yahweh has come to redeem his people from captivity and begin this process of new creation. In other words, Mark, from the very beginning of his gospel, identifies the role of Jesus with that of Yahweh. Indirectly suggesting that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, which comes more into the fore uh, as you read the gospel, through the gospel, he is the divine son of the living God. Come at last to rescue his covenant people and vanquish all their foes. You say, well, I already knew that. You're not giving me any information I didn't know already. But how does Mark do this? How does he tell us this? That's the important question here. Do we understand the significance of Jesus' uh, appearing, Jesus' incarnation, Jesus's work in light of what God has already been doing with his covenant people. So Mark records, uh, I'm going to draw to a close here soon. Mark records that John's ministry was somewhat successful. According to verse five, it says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This little tidbit that sometimes we skip over, I think, is highly significant in that some Israelites were actually attaching themselves to John's baptism and turning their backs on Israel's long-standing and now idolatrous institutions. They knew Israel had gone astray. John's message pricked their hearts and they came and received his baptism of repentance. And so by offering this baptism, John was indirectly challenging Israel's identity and structure saying, watch out, things are about to change. In other words, he was laying the foundation for Israel to be reconstituted as a people. Mark shows us that the beginning of the gospel is intrinsically connected with the Hebrew Scriptures, with what God has been doing from day one. And this issue is a warning for us. This issue is a warning for us. Defining Jesus' identity and work outside of this context is highly dangerous. We understand the gospel and its Lord only in terms of the entirety of the canon of Scripture, all of which testifies to him. And so Mark says at the beginning of the gospel that this is just as Isaiah said. This is just as Isaiah said. It's not that Isaiah was simply predicting John the Baptist, but rather Mark sees an analogy between Isaiah and the preaching of John in the wilderness. It was as if the Babylonian exile had followed the Israelites home from Babylonian captivity and Isaiah 40 offered a fitting analogy for those who looked for restoration. And here it came, finally. Not everybody recognized it. The heart of heart certainly didn't. But God did what He said. And and so lest His readers, and this is what I want us to, to think about based on the text here, lest His readers get the wrong idea of some kind of triumphalist stance against Rome, Mark prefaces his quotation with one from Malachi. And I've spent so much time talking about Malachi and why he quoted it, because here is the real meat. That oracle also looks forward to God's intervention, but not for restoration. In Malachi, remember, God, the messenger clears the way by calling for a repentance. Mark sees an analogy between Elijah and John. And so just as Malachi warned of God's judgment against Israel... So, John preached repentance and the forgiveness of sin. Mark's juxtaposition with Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 is there to uh, offer us a reprimand in the comforting oracle of Isaiah and make sure we get that we're not just here to get all the sappy and feel good parts of the gospel message. We want the whole picture. You can't have Malachi 3 without Isaiah 40 if we're going to really understand what God is doing. And that puts us right in the center of this. God comes to judge us. And in so judging us, He saves us. That's the paradox. And remarkably, this little textual detail regarding the subtlety of this Old Testament reference provides us the real meat for us to chew on from this text, I think. Instructing us that we who look to God to deliver us from our enemies must first examine ourselves... To see whether we are fit to stand before this righteous God by reckoning with his Messiah. And so the word of God proclaims hope for troubled souls and judgment for the self-assured. Against our human tendency to read the Bible in self-justifying ways, which I tend to do. Confirming my preferences and excusing my resentments. We must learn together to read self-critically allowing Scripture to correct us when we're wrong. And this is very difficult, and this requires community. I can't do this by myself. I need you uh, to, to help me with this. We sit under the Word, not over it. We don't want to master the Bible. We want it to master us, to remake us by the Spirit's renewing power. As the Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth was fond of saying in characteristic fashion, Only when the Bible grasps at us does it become for us the Word of God. It is the message of the Gospel that grasps at us. Is it still grasping at you? Or has it become passé? Will you reckon with a jolting announcement that the Kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ and are ready to repent and to stand before Him Mark teaches us to see God by looking to Jesus, but to understand him correctly, Mark uh, looks way back to the prophets of Israel. He sees them looking forward in anticipation of God's intervention. And so when Mark stands with them and he looks as they look, he sees John the Baptist in line with them and looking in the same direction with him. And then, you see how layered this is, as Mark looks at John looking at Jesus, he sees himself in that perspective. And so, with eyes trained by the prophets to look repentantly and trustingly to God, Mark, too, looks to Jesus for the answer. Mark's story invites his readers to see Israel, Rome, and themselves in an entirely different light because of Jesus. And so, we are like the crowds listening to the prophet John, seeking direction for our future, asking questions of why. We look for God's definitive intervention to set things right. And John points us to Jesus, the long-awaited One, who came so long ago and who for us is still yet coming again. But surely He will come. As in the past, Jesus may shock us when He shows up. And if we encounter Him, He shows us who we really are before Him. Our only hope is to join with John in repentance, humbling ourselves before God, standing on His promises, confessing our sins to one another, pursuing peace and reconciliation, purity and fidelity, moral courage and strength, loving as he loved us. In other words, living our lives in accordance with the reality that the kingdom of God has come on earth. And as we anticipate the returning king this season, who rides the clouds with the sovereign scepter in his hand, ruling over his creation with wisdom and justice, we do continue to pray with all the saints. Come, Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. John the baptizer had the ministry of preparation, and thus preached the message of repentance and confession in keeping with the prophetic tradition. But let's be frank, I will be frank with you and admit that this does not sound at first like good news to me. Repentance and confession entail facing the truth about ourselves and changing the direction of our lives. This is difficult. Who really wants to do either of those things in our fragility and our pride? So, this good news can often sound like bad news, at least at first. Repentance and confession both require a searching and an honest look back. This is painful. There are no shortcuts in this process. It is worth noting that John the Baptist, the one who insists on keeping the focus on the future and the one who is to come, also hearkens back to the past and his call for repentance. He represents a visual reminder to us of the past in the way he's dressed. John's camel hair outfit was several centuries out of fashion. Just the kind of clothing worn by Elijah. This retro clothing of the prophet recalls the reminders to us that any movement forward will first require a look back, both to our own personal histories and our, our own personal dealings with God, but also to our uh, the salvation history of God's people of which we are a part. And so this break, bracing look back that John insists upon is so very different than the kind of nostalgia that always seems to threaten to take center stage during Advent season in our culture, and sometimes even in the church. We must be mindful of this and be on guard against this error. I'll, I'll finish here before we come to the table with a quote from uh, Dietrich Bonheffer on, um, on this idea. So ponder this as we prepare to feast uh, together. Bonhoeffer reminds us, of the fuller picture of Advent when he says that when the old Christendom spoke of the coming again of the Lord Jesus, it always thought, first of all, of a great day of judgment. And as un like as this idea appears to us, it comes from early Christianity and must be taken with utter seriousness. The coming of God is truly not only a joyous message, indeed it is, but is first frightful news for anyone who has a conscience. And only when we have felt the frightfulness of the matter can we really know the incomparable favor. God comes in the midst of evil, in the midst of death, and judges the evil in us and in the world. And in judging it, he loves us, he purifies us, he sanctifies us, he comes to us with his grace and love. He makes us happy as only children can be happy. We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. As we approach this table of remembrance today, may we be joyfully repentant, mindful of the deep waters of grace from which we are nourished and mindful of this sacrifice of Jesus our Lord through which our sins have been washed. So with all this in mind, let us now celebrate at this table. Lord of the cloud by day and fire by night, our hands clutch the pilgrim's staff. Our our march is Zionward. Our eyes are set toward the coming of the Lord. Our hearts are in your hands without reserve. You have created us redeemed us, renewed us, captured us, and conquered us. And now, O God, send us forth once again on our pilgrim path through the world with all the confidence of the protective providence and presence of the Spirit of Christ. For He, our leader, has walked this road before us and has assured us with the seal of His love that nothing can separate us from Him. May we walk in the light of the Lord this coming week, led by Christ our light, in whose name we pray. Amen. And now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.